We are going through the book of Romans. We have finished chapter 9. We turn the page to chapter 10 today. Chapter 9 has some stout phrases for us to wrap our minds around. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, have I hated. Further, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. The text asks the question, is God unjust? May it never be, is the answer. Does the clay ask the potter, what are you doing? Those are phrases from Romans chapter 9, obviously accenting divine sovereignty and God's choice. You know, it was Thomas Jefferson who, in publishing his Bible, which included the Gospels, he cut out of the Gospels those passages that he did not like and then published his Bible. He cut out all of the miracles, not believing in them. Um, We pass from chapter 9, stressing divine sovereignty, to chapter 10. With these verses, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, accenting human responsibility. Isn't that fascinating? One chapter accenting divine sovereignty. The very next chapter celebrating human responsibility. Some churches are Romans chapter 9 churches focused only. Um, Some chapters are Romans chapter 10 theme focus only. The best of them are Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 focus in putting it together and working to put together even some of these difficult themes that seem paradoxical next to each other. Chapter 9, divine sovereignty. Chapter 10, human responsibility. To remind ourselves of this call uh, to responsiveness to our Lord, let's stand and read together these words from Romans chapter 10. Thank you. Together. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hear the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. 
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Hear the word of the Lord. Kent Hughes offers an interesting comment about Romans 9 and Romans 10 side by side. The word of God teaches both God's elective sovereignty and man's responsibility, though it does not show us how to reconcile the paradox. We come to chapter 10. Chapter 10 will accent human responsibility. Both truths are laid side by side in God's book. Can they both coalesce in a good church together? The scriptures would say, yes, indeed, they can. Here, Paul further explains the gospel of grace. In these first few verses, he keeps at the center of his discussion, the center of Christianity, which is knowing Jesus Christ as Savior in a real and personal way. I know the text of Romans 9, as I preached through it, stirred up a few folks. I love you. Dismiss everything that is not in the text that we have discussed. Pray for me to be faithful to the text. I covet your prayer on all fronts. Then, let's embrace it and obey it with all of our might and go forward together in love for one another and for such a precious Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, what I want to do this morning is to develop four ideas that Paul develops in these four verses, and they will form, then, questions that we will ask our hearts together today. These four verses ask us four pointed questions. Thank you for being here this morning and welcome. Number one, what are the desires of our hearts? Look at verse one. Brothers, my heart's desire. Let's just stop right there. Let me ask you, what is your heart's desire. What are we desiring for? Deep down, what do we really want to see accomplished? What is the desire of our heart that shows up in how we live? One metric is what we dream about. When no one's looking, what dream do you have about what you'd like to see accomplished? What aspiration do you have that you would love to see come forward? We roll up on Paul here in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. And he's going to be expressing his heart's desire. Now chapter 10 starts just like chapter 9 starts. Come back to chapter 9 verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
Why? For I could wish that I myself were a curse and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He's speaking. He's a Jewish man. And he's speaking of the Jewish nation's response to Jesus Christ. And he yearns with a yearning that is substantial that he describes in chapter 9, verse 2, and then comes back to talk about his heart's desire in chapter 10 and verse 1. There's a sense in which there's an echo of 9, 2, and 3 in chapter 10 and verse 1. Now here's the question then. Is there a place on my heart's bucket list for dreaming that others would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. That's Paul. Churches with those dreams are churches of influence. Are we dreaming about anybody's hearts here? You know, the contagious church is a church that when sent, leaves and takes the hope that others would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior with them as they go. And if you harbor that hope in your heart and that dream, it'll have a way of influencing how we use our time, how we use our talents, how we use our resources, and how we connect with other people who have not yet come to follow Jesus Christ. What are the desires of our hearts? Just this week I was told uh, that the most, the churches full of outreach are churches that have organic, natural contact with others where they live, where they work, where they shop, where they exercise, the sports teams they are on, the parents of kids that our kids are on the teams that we are with, the natural settings to leverage those settings as an opportunity to let our light shine and share Jesus with others, why that's the ideal contagion that can take off. Uh, Just this week I was told about uh, a a gal here who uh, left and praying about her neighborhood, thinking about her neighborhood, and at the community center in her neighborhood or, 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 or some home in the neighborhood, they are now hosting a Bible study about heaven and about its reality and about how to get there and about how Jesus has provided a means to have, to live with such a hope and die with such a hope. And when I heard that, I, th- I just, you go, that's great. Now, what if you populate a congregation with everyone thinking those thoughts? So as we come into chapter 10, brothers, my heart's desire, what is your heart's desire? What is my heart's desires? What are your heart's desires for us together here at Calvary? Second question is, for what do we plead in prayer? Notice he says, brothers, my heart's desire in prayer. He's going to talk about what he's praying about. My prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Here is Paul, a Jewish man, who is praying about his Jewish brothers and sisters who have not yet come to place their faith in Christ. In fact, they kind of famously uh, turned away from Christ when he was presented in his earthly ministry. 
And yet Paul is yearning for a day which is anticipated in Romans 9, 10, and 11 when yet at a future day there will be a response from Jewish people to Jesus Christ and an embrace of him by faith. And so what is he doing? He's praying for that to take place. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. What are you praying, Paul? And he's pretty clear. It's straightforward. This is not difficult to understand that they might be saved. Wasn't it Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, now in heaven, who carried in his billfold a little card upon which were the names of five people that he was praying for who would come to place their faith in Christ? It's amazing what happens to the conduct of our life and our schedule if you begin to pray in such ways. Because that praying will seep into our action and what we do. So how many of us can read this verse, come next to Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 1 and say, you know, that, that's just like me. I am praying for others that they would be saved. The prayer life of a gospel Christian is populated with pleas, pleas to God that others would come to believe in him. What's it like this morning to be next to Paul's heart? Is our church a heart that pleads with God for others to be saved? For what do we plead for in prayer? Now, even in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sorry, even in, yeah, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Christ's model of prayer, there is a prayer for self. Um, give us this day our daily bread. That, that, that's a prayer for us to have sustenance to live. But if we're not careful, all of our praying can center around me and my and mine and, and, and we can forget somehow that God has an agenda that's larger than our family. Now, by the way, God's agenda is not any less than our family. Uh, and it's important. One of the joys of life is to pray for family. And as our family has grown, the, the, the prayer for our grandchildren and the Spirit of God to be at work revealing Christ to them. Our seven-year-old granddaughter this week uh, decided she was going to host her own vacation Bible school. So she wrote lyrics to a song that she wanted to teach everybody who was going to come. And, uh, and I was unable to discern what she was writing. But uh, Grandy, my wife, of course, she was right on it. And she has the ability to interpret the tongues that were there. And, uh, and it, it was fascinating what she wrote. It was a song thanking God for the gift of eternal life that one could have when you believed. Closed with, woo, woo, that was how it closed, you know. <laughs> but I, it, it was just a little glimpse into a seven-year-old heart, and I thought, Lord, I'm going to keep praying for sustained development and interest in the things of our Lord. But if we're not careful, I can pray for my wife and our children and our grandchildren. 
as if that was the only thing to pray for. But here's, on the forefront of Paul's mind and heart, remember the words that he uses in 9-2. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish of heart. What for? In yearning that his people would come to know Jesus. Are we praying in such a way? My heart's desire and prayer. Paul prayed that his Jewish brothers and sisters would come to Christ. Verse 1, that they may be saved. It's very evident what he's praying about. As we listen to ourselves pray, what ought we conclude about our aspirations? Remember the story that Jesus told of the importune widow who wouldn't leave the judge alone? Incessant, constant, repeated request, asking and asking and asking and asking. Jesus said, that's a picture of how prayer ought to be. Just sustained asking. A couple of Mondays ago, a friend of mine, I I had a funeral for a friend of mine's wife. She died. And um, I, I learned a lot about her growing up through the process that I didn't know. She had a godly mother. Her and her brother uh, were actually adopted into this family. And then their father died. And her godly mother, uh, through faith in Christ and the glory of prayer, reared those children. And she had a long habit in her life of praying. Toward the end of her life, uh, the family ran rotations to make life work. And her son brother to the deceased drew the straw for the night shift. So he'd go over there at night and he would uh, get her ready and get her into bed and then he'd sleep there and get up and take flight in the morning and, you know, tag his sisters it and others who were helping and on he'd go. He came there night after night. Uh, she had had a long habit of praying out loud before she went to sleep at night. And he said, every night before she went to sleep, she was praying for her son-in-law, Tim, who had not yet come to faith in Christ. And so he would hear her pray night after night after night after night as she's waning, and then because she believed in Jesus Christ, she died and went to heaven. Fast forward years later, fast forward to this funeral just a couple weeks ago, Tim, that son-in-law that she prayed about, about 2009 or 2008, joyfully, as an adult, came to place his faith in Christ. And God, God is such a genius in how he uses everything. There's only one way to God, and it is through Jesus Christ our Lord. But there are a million ways to get to Jesus. And God works them. His son is playing golf high school with our son. Our student pastor at the time was the assistant golf coach, and we were always strategizing for how we can bring these parents in and share Jesus with them. And so we'd have these banquets at the end, and we'd have good food and pass out the awards and tell them about Jesus. Well, uh, that was just the icing on the cake for Tim to come to Christ after his wife had made the cake and baked it and uh, frosted it because he told me, you know that passage, Eric, in 1 Peter 3, 1, 
Her husband will be won without a word by observing her chaste and holy behavior. He said, I couldn't shake the reality of my wife knowing Jesus Christ. And it got to Tim. But as Tim's brother-in-law, David, told me the story of being there listening to his mom pray, I thought of her praying. And David, the brother-in-law, shared it with emotion that, you know, the Lord heard mom's prayer. And he responded, and Tim came to faith. Who are you praying for? Keep praying. Do you realize that some of us will die with requests for prayer unanswered at that point, but in a postmortem way will come to be uh, because God works his ways according to his time. For what do we plead in prayer? If you'd listen to me pray all week this past week, what would you conclude? If you would if I would listen to you pray, what would I conclude? You know, if we listen to Paul pray, we would say, Paul yearns that other people would come to place their faith in Jesus. The third question is this. Do we practice rules Christianity? Look at verses 2 and 3. Some frame Christianity as a bunch of rules to keep. Note to self. Let's make it this morning. The sum of Christianity is knowing Jesus Christ in a real and personal way as our Savior. That's it. The sum of Christianity is not keeping rules. Don't do this, but be sure and do these things. That's not the sum of Christianity. The sum of Christianity is knowing Jesus Christ in a real and personal way. Since that's a sum of Christianity, we need to stop and ask this morning, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you reached a place in your own journey in life that you have come to know this one who loved us and gave himself for us? Our sin estranged us from God because he is holy and all of us have sinned. In thought, in word, in deed, we've all broken the law of God. We're separated from him. But God came running after us in the person of Jesus Christ. Good Friday, he resolved the guilt and penalty of our sin and took our hell upon himself so we could be given the gift of righteousness which makes us acceptable to God when we but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you come to place your faith in Christ? Has God brought you here this morning? Midpoint 2023 in the summer, Eric, that's when I came to place my faith in Christ. Is God opening your heart now to realize you need what God brought us in Jesus Christ? Greater love is no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice Two things, sadly, are possible that are listed here in these verses. Number one, it's possible to have a zeal for God that is misplaced. Eric, what what do you mean? You're not pro-zeal for God? You know what? I'm really pro-zeal for God. In fact, we could probably use an ounce or two more zealousness than we seem to have. 
but it is possible to have zeal that is misplaced, that has zeal that is inauthentic. Notice he says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is fascinating in its deceit. A zeal. Number two, then, uh, two things are possible simultaneously. It's possible to have zeal. Oh, Eric, it must be real if they're zealous. If there's sincerity, if there's zeal, it's got to be real. No, Paul is saying you can have sincerity, you can have zeal, and it can be misplaced and not be authentic knowing of Jesus Christ. You can have a zeal disconnected with the knowledge of gospel truth. That's what he says. The zeal is not driven according to the knowledge of God. In fact, being ignorant of the righteousness of God in that zeal, trying to seek to establish their own righteousness, not understanding the nature of his righteousness. Do you realize that zealousness is not the ultimate test of authenticity? There are many zealous religious people who are ignorant of the righteousness of God, according to Romans 10, 3. If our faith, back to rules, merely consists in a group of do's and don'ts, we've missed it. Our faith is in a person, Jesus Christ, who embodies life and hope in himself. And to know him is to have life. To know him is to have hope. At the center of Christianity is Jesus. I was talking to a friend this week, and it's not often that something like this is said to me, but he said, Eric, you need to stop what you're doing and go spend time with Jesus. (laughs) It's a fascinating charge in the middle of the interaction. But isn't that the heart of Christianity? It's about knowing Jesus Christ. I mean, we're not play acting. Uh, We're not just filling our Sunday mornings up with something because we could do, you know, this is better than what we might could do. No, we are here. Because together we approach the living God through Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit, we interact with him and through him, others who follow him. Christianity is about knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. Rules Christianity is an attempt to make its basis the establishment of our own righteousness. Did you see that? For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, what do they do then? Seeking to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. Um, It's kind of fun to have... uh, a car that might have a little bit of age on it, but um, there's still a measure of life in the finish on the car. And to find a ball of wax someplace and a good rag and and, uh, wax the car. It can be like a before and an after and it can look dull and and, uh, lack of sheen and you put some time into it and it looks pretty good. Faith in Christ and Christianity is nothing like that. It's not like getting the soul wax out with a good rag and polishing up who we are. 
we need to be made brand new, which is what happens when we come to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Rules Christianity is an attempt to make it based on our righteousness. It's possible to have an incomplete understanding of what makes us right with God, not according to knowledge, ignorant of the righteousness of God, notwithstanding being full of sincerity and zeal. We're not again sincerity and zeal, but we are for it filled and stemming from a robust vision of the righteousness of God given to us by faith in the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we practice rules Christianity? By the way, many young person has walked away from the faith because that's all they've ever seen. If it's a bunch of do's and don'ts, I'm out. And they've missed all along the glory of knowing Jesus in a real and personal way. Jesus lives. A friend of mine was at a college campus as a student. The last thing in his mind was that there is a God at home in the universe who's revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus, and he's deeply interested in saving us from the indulgences of our sin and a tragic life apart from him. And so he's walking across campus, and an, an, an eager person to share with him came up to him and said, hey, I want to tell you something. Jesus Christ lives it may have been around Easter that he was carrying this message, so he kind of put those two thoughts together. But at first he dismissed the person, but then he couldn't shake that, and it was the very thing that God used to open his heart to believe. The most extraordinary reality is that Jesus lives. The tomb is empty. Someone is home in the universe, and he can be known. Now the last question then is this. Do we realize that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all that is demanded of us? Look at verse 4. It lies in English benign, and we can miss something very, very important that is here. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law. The fulfillment of the law all anticipated in the law. Everything revealed in what God disclosed at Sinai was realized in the perfect life of Jesus, in the perfections of the life of Jesus, in the merits of his holy, faithful life. The law is fulfilled. The end of the law, the completion of the law, what the law anticipated is completely fulfilled in the person of Christ. Such that we don't relate to God now by keeping the law, but by embracing the one who perfectly kept the law and entrusting in the perfections of his life and his God-satisfying death because he was the Lamb of God without blemish, we come to have eternal life. Christ is the end of the law. For everyone burdened down by, I can't keep the law, this is good news. The law has been kept to the fullest extent. It is completed. Christ is the end of the law. All that was anticipated. This, Romans 10.4, is the cemetery for legalism. The law has been fulfilled. 
It gives new meaning to that sweet phrase in Colossians 3.3. Our lives, when we know Jesus Christ as Savior, are hidden with Christ in God. You talk about security. What the lyricist said, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The whole righteousness question is settled in Christ. How righteous do you have to be? As righteous as Christ. He has completed the demands of the law. They've been fulfilled. He didn't come to dismiss the law. You heard Chris read it. He came to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, 17. Every demand of the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, fulfilled in the person of Christ, upon whom when believed, the righteousness of God comes to us. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So there are two ideas about how to be righteous enough for God to accept us. One is the righteousness of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ's fidelity to the law and in the merits of his holy life, and I believe in him. The other is that we would manufacture our own righteousness, but our own does not make the grade. Now, everybody is a DIY person today. It's cheaper. Uh, but do-it-yourself righteousness will not make us acceptable before God. But the glory of Jesus coming is we don't have to because he has done it. That's, he's fulfilled the law. He's the end of the law. And in embracing him, we come to have life. Gospel Christianity is not like Burger King. Have it your way. No, we have it Christ's way by receiving him and in receiving him, that kind of righteousness that makes us acceptable. Oh, the glory, the gift of the gospel, the perfections of Jesus, the submission of his life to the will of God brought an end to the law. It brought an end to law religion's quest to find favor with God in the end, it's either we save ourselves, which is not possible, or Jesus saves. And when believing in him, we come to that salvation. Suddenly, legacy admissions are on the outs, and vice presidents of developments at every major university are shaking in their boots. After the Supreme Court decision on Harvard's admission and University of North Carolina's admission standards, arguing that Asian students were discriminated against a violation of the 14th Amendment. After that decision, now what's on the chopping block is what is called legacy admissions. Legacy admissions go something like this. If your great-grandfather went to Harvard and had a great education and got out and did well and looked back upon his education as a part of the did wellness and wrote a fat check, they would remember your name in the admissions office. So that when your grandfather 
applied to Harvard and your father applied to Harvard, uh, you had generationally established yourself as a family that was going to help Harvard forward, and so you get in. In a legacy admission, the merits of your test scores, you don't have to have a 1600 on the SAT or a 36 on the ACT. Your essay doesn't have to read like a Nobel laureate. Your references don't have to start with the head of the UN and go down from there. You get in because of what family you are in. Called a legacy admission. It's also been exceedingly helpful for schools because in this vein, the checks keep coming from these legacy families. Well, that's out now. But I want you to know that the only admission in heaven is a legacy admission. It's not on the merits of our ACT score or our SAT score. It's not on the merits of our references nor what could be written about how good our life has been and how much influence we've had. There's only one reason or what Peter said in Acts 4. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. But in the name of Jesus Christ and the legacy of what he has brought, we come to have eternal life. What a Savior. What a glory. What a privilege to know Jesus Christ by faith. Not on our merits, but being found acceptable to God on his. Praise be to God for all that he's brought in Jesus. Father, you know the crowd. You know who at times wonder about their salvation. You know those who are just stone lost. You know those who, in the midst of the struggle of life in a broken world, are just discouraged this morning. Lord, encourage them with the hope of eternal life found in Jesus Christ. As we sing this concluding song, I pray that it would come from responsive hearts. How on earth could we remain unmoved before the wonder of such grace? What a Savior. What a glory in knowing Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Oh, God, bless Calvary. You have and you are work in our midst. And there's no work you could do that would be more beneficial than bringing our hearts out in affection for this one, Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing with responsive hearts.